Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. See, this difference between Black Star Network and Black-owned media and something like CNN. You can't be Black-owned media and be scared. It's time to be smart. Bring your eyeballs home. You dig? Today is Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. Coming up on Roland Martin on Field on the Black Star Network, the first day of black history. But we do black history every day. Folks, uh, huge story out of Louisiana. State lawmakers, black state lawmakers, are demanding answers from the Democratic governor, John Bill Edwards, regarding a case that, as we've been talking about for quite some time, uh, dealing with the death of Ronald Green, where state troopers lied about how he was actually killed. We'll talk with two of those lawmakers next. Also, an explosive lawsuit filed moments ago by Brian Flores, the fired head coach of the Miami Dolphins, he is hitting all 32 NFL teams with a racism lawsuit, specifically pointing out three teams that he said conducted sham interviews with him. Folks, when you see the allegations in here, clearly he said enough is enough. We'll be joined by Texas Congressman Al Green about a variety of issues, including President Joe Biden's pick for the Supreme Court and voting reform and voter suppression in Texas. The Georgia sheriff who said there was nothing criminal in the Kendrick Johnson case uh, after a second investigation is now offering a half a million dollars for information that will lead to a conviction. What's up with that? A Houston man we feature in our Black and Missing segment, folks, unfortunately found dead in the trunk of his car in an impound four, out, four hours away in Dallas. What's going on? And also for the second day in a row, bomb threats fall into several HBCUs. Folks, we're gonna continue talking about suicide in African-Americans, but also we're gonna discuss this uh, article that Chesley Christ uh, wrote last year. She was approaching 30 about the pressures of that milestone and not having enough time to accomplish her life goals. By 30, we'll talk with two professionals, including America's psychologist, Dr. Jeff Gardier, about 
the pressures to achieve. Plus, in our Marketplace segment, uh, brought to you by Verizon, we'll introduce you to a sister from Houston who is killing the construction game. Her company has done about 90% of the work needed by the Houston Independent School District. Folks, it is time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the find. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Associated Press folks released a damning report claiming that Louisiana Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards knew about the deadly arrest of Ronald Green in 2019, hours after it happened. Here's the text message Edwards received on May 10th, 2019. Good morning and FYI, early this morning, troopers attempted to stop a vehicle in uh, uh, Ochita Parish, the driver fled through two parishes in excess of 110 miles an hour, eventually crashing. Troopers arrested, uh, attempted to uh, place the driver under arrest, but a violent, lengthy struggle took place. After some time struggling with the su suspect, troopers were joined by a Union Parish deputy and were able to take the suspect into custody. The suspect remained, uh, of course, combative, but became uh, unresponsive shortly before EMS arrived. The suspect was later pronounced dead at the hospital. We are investigating the suspect's death. Well, today, the Black Caucus of Louisiana met with the governor to get some answers. Joining us right now from Baton Rouge is State Senator uh, Katrina Jackson, who was in that meeting, and also Vincent Pierre, who is the chair of the Black Caucus. Folks, glad to have you here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's start here, okay? We now know that they lied about how Ronald Green died, correct? That's correct. That's correct. Yes. So the initial reports that they said that he crashed into, was it crashed into a tree? The initial reports is that he crashed into a tree and he died from that crash. Um, the videos did show that he crashed into a tree, but there were uh, some incidents of tasing and um, also one state trooper hit him over the head with a, um, an object. And they horse tied him, is what I call it, when they tie your hands and your feet together and put him face down while he had already sustained injuries from a car accident. So none of that, of course, was in the text message uh, to uh, the governor. Uh, and again, what they text the governor differs from what they initially said publicly about what happened. Um, well, they text the governor, then made a public statement that um, somewhat differed, um, you know, it's been arguable, but they basically covered it up. Let me say that. The Green family has been screaming for justice, and as my chairman can tell you, this was a major cover-up. Um, when the family finally had an opportunity to review the tapes, members of the Black Caucus had arranged it and were there, and it showed something grossly different from what the state police had said. Now, had the governor uh, 
previously commented on this case about how he found out about it? I did. I, th I think he did, if I'm uh, not mistaken. He had commented right after uh, the video was leaked. And what he said was that the case initially, um, he heard about it in 2019, was an FYI that he receives uh, regarding all in-custody deaths or shootings uh, regarding an officer. So his comments, which he will be more pointed to speak to, were basically that he had just found out in 2020 that the text he received was not what really happened. Um, Vincent, people have been very critical that this Democratic governor has not done enough to get to the truth of this matter. State troopers have been, uh, have been uh, covering up evidence. Uh, there have been numerous reports about their conduct. Uh, did that come up in the meeting, and what did the governor say? Well, we, we said that he could have handled it differently, and uh, we spoke to him in, in, in great terms that the things that, were, that took place between he and the department was handled wrong. And uh, he understood that he did make some mistakes, and uh, if it was, he was to do it again, he would um, ensure that that doesn't happen. But, you know, he's very remorseful of those decisions and what he's done, and, and, and we understood and we, want, we made sure that he understands where we are. But, you know, at the, at, at the end of the day, it's a family that lost their child, the Green family. And we're really, really and truly concerned that that family has not had uh, the, 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 the situation resolved. And that is our job as caucus members, to ensure that that family gets the answers that they need. So, okay, so, so what is next? Because, again, uh, we, look, you can't trust the state, the state troopers. We can't trust them to investigate this, to come to the truth, because they, they repeatedly lied. And, and the evidence is there. The AP and others have been doing various uh, investigations showing how they lied, how they covered up the lie, and continue to do so. Well, the Black Caucus, uh, some months ago, when we realized that this incident had occurred, called on the federal government to come and investigate. So I, I want to say about four or five months ago, the federal government is now investigating it as of that time frame that we asked them to come in. Because as you said, Mr. Martin, we could not trust the state police to investigate themselves. That's what happened initially. And the reports they put out showed something grossly different from what happened. So that's what we are now. The federal government is investigating this matter. Uh, and we are waiting to see what they come up with. We know something happened. We've seen the videos. We all have, you, your audience, and everyone, what the federal government does next and the federal prosecutors do next and who they charge uh, is going to be vitally important. Um, and so, again, in terms of um, you know, the next steps, uh, is there still a gag order? Because we, we tried to have, we tried to have the, the family attorneys on. Is there still a gag order in place uh, for the family members of Ronald Green and those involved with the case? Well, to the extent that there are sensitive matters going on during the criminal investigation, as you know, there are always going to be some gag orders in criminal investigation. We can't fully expound on what the attorneys have agreed to. The family is represented legally. What we are now standing in place in a gap for the family is what we've always done and make sure that justice occurs. And that's where we are. We will continue as a black caucus to um, speak out against it. We will continue to ask for reforms. There's a Senate Select Committee on state, uh, the state police, and we're asking for certain reforms that happen. You may see some legislation coming forward. The family's legal counsel is handling the legal matters. That gag order exists for them and not us. All right, then. We certainly appreciate y'all joining us 
uh, to uh, talk about uh, this case. It certainly is sad that his family uh, did not, was not told exactly what happened. And that, that again, like all the other stories we've been dealing with, that we have to deal with uh, police abuse and cover-ups to get to the simple truth of what happened. Thank you. And thank you. And let me tell you, we were in the room, I was in the room when the family viewed the tape. Um, it was something egregious. And to leave out of the room and find out later that another tape existed that even the district attorney didn't have and how this thing has continued to perpetuate, I believe at some point justice will be served because voices are fighting with that family. But I need to commend that family. For a year and a half, two years, they didn't get any results and they kept fighting and this would have quietly went by this cover-up would have quietly happened with no attention if that mother uh, miss mona wouldn't have spoke up and wouldn't have continued to come and fly into baton rouge and so i tell you that i, I this family has fought for their loved one uh, have y'all been in contact with the family uh has there someone apprised them of your meeting say with the governor no we we're just coming out at meeting and jumping on a call with you um like Representative Pierre, our chairman, said the governor said he wished he would have been informed more, would have take, taken more of a lead in communication with his um, superintendent. Uh, we cannot substantiate the allegations of our uh, other uh, colleagues who are saying that he participated in the cover-up. I think um, today or yesterday, the federal investigators and the federal prosecutor put out a statement that he was not under investigation but he shows, you know, remorse, and we will talk to the family about what happened in that meeting. They deserve it. We are not being clandestine at all with the family. Every meeting we have, everything that's discussed, we share it with them so they can understand what's happening on the ground here. All right, then. Uh, we certainly appreciate both of you uh, joining us uh, on the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks a bunch. I want to bring in my panel right now. Mustafa Santiago Ali, former senior advisor for environmental justice at the EPA, Teresa Lundy, Founder of TML Communications, Demario Solomon Simmons, civil rights attorney, founder of Justice for Greenwood. Demario, I want to start with you again. I, we discussed this yesterday, and it's, it's a continuing deal. Um, in order for us to get justice, we got to yell, holler, scream, kick, sue, threaten folks, uh, and uh, protest, uh, some say riot, to get justice. And, th and that unfortunately uh, continues to happen. Pick a state, Oklahoma, Texas. Louisiana, New York State, New Jersey, California, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama. It goes on and on and on. Well, I think Brother Malcolm said it best. If you're below the Canadian border, you're in the South <coughs> America. And that's exactly what it is. As I'm listening to that lady, um, your last uh, guest talk, I just think about the, the hundreds of cases I've personally been involved in. And it's just the thousands of cases like you hear about every year. We have to push fight just to get the most basic level of fairness, right? They're not even talking about actually getting these people convicted. Like, can we just get these folks to be investigated the correct way? So it's frustrating, man. It's, it's the black tax that we live with each and every day. There's no way around it. I think that's why it's important for us to, as we talk to our next generation coming up, they understand what they're really up against here in America, we have to be two times better. We have to uh, always be stronger, always be faster, always be smarter, always have greater credentials. Are we talking about that with the Supreme Court? That is unfair, it's tiring, it's taxing on our mental, it's all of that. So I think we have to be real realistic of where we are in this country, that's what it is. And we have to be giving ourselves even more grace to each other because we're all dealing with that system. I really hate 
what happened to Brother Green and the Brother Greens that happened all over this country. But you're right, Roland. I'm dealing with this every single day with my clients, and you see it every single day with people from all around this nation. It doesn't matter how, if you're light-skinned or dark-skinned, right? That brother's a light-skinned brother. It doesn't matter if you have a great job or no job. It doesn't matter if you um, prominent or unprominent in the community. This can happen to you. This is why we must have systematic change here in America. Um, Teresa, uh, it is, uh, and, and the thing here, how this was so egregious because uh, the, the state troopers, I mean, were very, very clear about the efforts to cover this thing up. I mean, I mean, you know, this was, and, and this wasn't just the the troopers on the scene. It also was higher ups. Yeah, I think we've seen countless times where we see the brotherhood of the FOP stick together, especially when some of their stories involving some black and brown people start to um, dissipate in what the actual facts are. And so it's it's obviously beyond concerning, but it's also a relevant um, pattern that has continued to happen. And I think, you know, the governor was on the right track in Louisiana when he said, you know, these actions are disturbing. You know, we need to look into it and there's going to be a further investigation. But going back into the earlier point is if we didn't have these videos, if we weren't able to capture some of these horrific moments that are, that are happening to these people, what is the narrative that is going to be given to these families in order for them to get justice? And so, again, if, if the FOP doesn't change, if the union doesn't change, if the arbitration doesn't change, um, then we will still keep getting these cases that will receive, unfortunately, no justice until proof is actually delivered. Mustafa. Hold tight one second. Uh, so are we having some issues with his audio, folks? All right, then. So, Mustafa, we're going to hang up with you and call you right back uh, to um, uh, to fix your audio. Uh, and so, guys, let me know when he's Can I say something? I'll just, on what my sister just said about if Go we ahead. didn't have these videos. She's so correct about that, if we didn't have these videos, because they just blatantly lie all the time. Listen, it is a corrupt police system across this nation. They teach these people how to lie on police reports. They give them the phrases to say. They give them what the language to write. In fact, I have had case after case where supervisors have actually helped the police officer change their narrative and say, no, you need to say it this way and use this language so it can make it seem like what we did was justified. They put bogus charges on people all the time. Anytime, almost 99% of the time when you see obstruction of officer, or, or, or assault on a police officer, that's usually made up. That's a way to justify the corruption that they have. I mean, just like the Terrence Crutcher case here in Tulsa, when they first talked about that Terrence was, was uh, you know, trying to attack the officer, and then you get the video and he's shot in the back with his hands up in the air. This happens countless, countless count times. This is not about bad apples. It's about a bad system and bad policies, as my sister said on, on the panel. Arbitration, these police unions, all of this needs to be reformed completely. Uh, Mustafa, uh, you're back. Uh, hopefully your audio is straight. Uh, your comment. Yeah, no, I agree with my fellow panelists. It is it's a systemic set of issues, you know, and it runs all the way from, you know, the patrolman all the way up throughout the system, really all the way up to the governor also. So I appreciate, you know, the basic words that the governor shared, but I want to know how you're going to change the system. What are the 
what are the different things that are going to be in place to make sure that these types of dynamics don't continue to play out time and time again. Um, because, you know, we're paying with our lives. So we expect to see real change happen. Um, and speaking of real change, folks, an explosive lawsuit came out uh, you know, a couple of hours ago. Brian Flores, who was fired earlier, uh, who was fired uh, late uh, last year as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins, dropped a discrimination lawsuit against the National Football League. In this 58-page lawsuit, he says that the NFL is practicing racism against black coaches, conducting sham interviews with these black coaches. He specifically calls out three NFL teams for their actions. Not only that, in his lawsuit, he claims that Stephen Ross, the, the owner of the Miami Dolphins, offered to pay him $100,000 for every game the Dolphins lost to essentially tank to improve their draft position. In this lawsuit, he says that when he began to win late in the season, uh, he, he began to find out that Ross was miffed at him and angry at him. He also claims that Roth, Ross wanted him to recruit a top-quality quarterback, which was against the NFL rules. It was tampering. Flores says he refused to do so. Uh, folks, in this lawsuit filed in Manhattan Federal Court, uh, he also claims uh, that when he interviewed uh, with the Denver Broncos, at the Denver Broncos brass, including... Hall of Famer John Elway, who uh, runs personnel for the team, came to the meeting an hour late, and they all admitted they were hungover because they'd out been drinking the previous night. He also blasts the uh, New York Giants for giving him a sham interview. He includes in his lawsuit text messages between him and Bill Belichick, his former coach at the New England uh, Patriots, where Flores used to be on staff, where he says that Belichick told him that... Uh, that, uh, that word out of Buffalo and New York that Brian was the guy. But he texted him back, it was the other Brian who was hired by the Giants uh, and not Brian Flores. Uh, and then he's, Belichick said, sorry, I effed up. I effed this up, double-checked and misread the text. I think they are naming Brian Dable. I'm sorry about that. Uh, and again, he, he, he blasts them. So he's specifically blasting the Giants, the Dolphins, uh, and the Broncos. The Giants say they are pleased with the process, pleased and confident with their process. They say that Brian Flores was a candidate up until the 11th hour, um, but he's saying no. Uh, this is a, uh, a, again, a huge, huge uh, interview. Now, the Broncos, they claim the interview with Brian Flores lasted three and a half hours and was conducted by uh, five team executives. This is the statement that they sent, it's on ESPN. Pages of detailed notes, analysis, and evaluations from our interview demonstrate the depth of our conversation and sincere interest in Mr. Flores as a head coaching candidate. Our process was thorough and fair to determine the most qualified candidate for our head coaching position. The Broncos will vigorously defend the integrity and values of our organization and its employees from such baseless and disparaging claims. Of course, uh, and then, of course, Denver, they hired uh, Vic Fangio for the job. Uh, and so uh, the law firm he's working with, Wigdor Law LLP, they say they want this lawsuit to, quote, shine a light on the racial injustices that take place inside the NFL. There are a number of things that Flores wants to see happen. 
uh, which include increased influences of black individuals in hiring, increased the objectivity of hiring and terminating GMs, head coaches, and coordinators, increasing the number of black coordinators, also incentivizing the hiring and retention of black coaches and GMs and coordinators, transparency of pay for GMs, head coaches, and coordinators, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, other issues as well, and, and seeks unspecified damages from the NFL. Uh, this is a significant lawsuit, uh, DeMario, because, first off, Brian, there are four positions still available. One of them is, of course, Miami Dolphins, where he was fired from. But there are three other head coaching jobs that are still available. Houston Texans, where Brian Flores was interviewed, Jacksonville Jaguars, Minnesota Vikings. And so he's not even waiting for this process to play out, process to play out. I mean, for him to file this lawsuit, what this says is, I'm burning all the boats. Anybody knows, look, if you file a lawsuit against the NFL alleging racism, they ain't going to consider you for another, hire, another head coaching job. I would be absolutely shocked if one of these teams hires him. This sounds like he wants to go forward. He wants discovery. He wants depositions to expose what's happening in the NFL. Man, I only wish I was the lawyer that he called to file this lawsuit. As you know, I'm suing the University of Iowa football team right as we speak for 13 black football players, and it's the same thing that Brian Florence is saying. I don't care what the repercussions are going to be. No surrender, no retreat. I respect this brother for doing this because, as you stated, he's going to be blackballed from anything to do with the NFL. But we know what he's saying is true. And we've been waiting for so long for someone to stand up who's on the inside, speak the truth, and use the law. Title VII is a powerful, powerful employment law that can be utilized the way it's being utilized. Also, he's also probably utilizing uh, 1981, Section 1981. I haven't had a chance to review the lawsuit yet. I know what he's saying is accurate because I've been in this industry for a long time, been around sports at a high level for a long time, as you know, Roland. And so this is just a powerful, powerful, powerful lawsuit to bring it this time, right before the Super Bowl. And with the text message, I did see the front page of the lawsuit when I sat down right before we came on. The front first thing they have is the, the text from uh, Belichick saying, hey, they're going to hire this other guy. Yes, what you have on the screen right now. So if he's saying that he already received this text right before they actually interviewed him, they have some big problems. I salute this brother. I hope he has plenty of money in the bank. I hope he's prayed up. I hope his law firm is racked and ready to roll because the NFL will do everything they can to defend themselves. And I hope all the other black coaches who have been discriminated against, black GMs, will come out the woodwork. And let me say one other thing about it, Roland. We need so much more than just more black coaches and black GMs. And you say it all the time, Roland. We need black ownership. We need black ownership. That's the thing. It's not about diversity. It's about equity. And the equity is we built the league. We sustain the league as black players, over 75% black players. And there should be black ownership and black people making those decisions. And hopefully this lawsuit can have a better ending for the totality than the Colin Kaepernick situation had for the, how the NFL actually does stuff on a substantive level. Well, on that particular point there, Teresa, Colin Kaepernick sued the NFL as well, eventually settling for $8 million. There were a lot of people who were very frustrated by that because they thought that his whole goal uh, was to expose the NFL. Well, you don't do that when you settle. Uh, for what Brian Flores is doing uh, is, is huge. I mean, he is literally putting his career on the line. In fact, um, in the um, ESPN story, this is what um, uh, he said. Now, mind you, Flores is 41 years old, okay? Many could say that he was going to get another shot in the NFL. 
Uh, this was his quote. God has gifted me with a special talent to coach the game of football. But the need for change is bigger than my personal goals. In making the decision to file the class action complaint today, I understand that I may be risking coaching the game that I love and that has done so much for my family and me. My sincere hope is that by standing up against systemic racism in the NFL, others will join me to ensure that positive change is made for generations to come. Absolutely. I mean, look, you know, Brian is setting a precedent that precedent that is um, very necessary during these times. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there needs to be more and more individuals like him, but we also need to stand with him. And part of it is people know that there has been an ongoing problem within the NFL for decades. And for for you to have someone who, with his Brian's type of background, his acumen, his experience and knowing what it takes to, to move up the level to where he is and then to identify the issues even on a broader scale. I think when we start to look at the Rooney rule of the compliance that the NFL has charged for, you know, social um, uh, equity across the board and, and to make sure that best practices are actually held with black and brown people that for hiring, we still have these issues where it is it's, it's still not being upheld. And if, since it's not being upholded, we need someone like Brian. We need other, you know, um, not just black and brown coaches. We need white coaches to stand up for that same rule because, again, we are a part of the overall and our us as in black and brown people who are playing the game, who are getting injured by the game. We are seeing so many players step up ever since George Floyd and the rest. I think the pandemic has woken everybody up to, to some of the injustices that are happening. But I, I think overall, you know, like Colin, like Brian, and like many others that will come after them, change will happen as long as we stand with these good brothers um, and also uh, take, you know, just take charge against the system that is essentially making money off of us. Um, Mustafa, uh, when, after Brian Floyds was fired, uh, Troy Vincent, former NFL player who actually uh, is a VP for the NFL, uh, said this. He said there was a double standard when it comes to the, the black coaches keeping their jobs. This is what uh, he said uh, in this article that was in the Washington Post. Uh, he said uh, that uh, they can't shy away from uh, how the league treats black coaches after they only coach for a few short years. Uh, or, or even they have, they have uh, you know, short tenures. He cites Tony Dungy, Jim Caldwell, Steve Wilkes, uh, Tyrone Willingham, even when he was at, the, at Notre Dame. He said there's a double standard, and we've seen that. And you talk about the appetite for what's acceptable. Let's go back to Tyrone Willingham at Notre Dame, who was fired after a winning season. Coach Dungy was let go in Tampa Bay after a winning season. So we have seen this. Coach Wilkes, just a few years prior, was let go after one year. And then the things that happened Monday, there's a double standard. I don't think that that is something that we should shy away from. But that is all part of some of the things that we need to fix in the system. We want to hold everyone to, uh, to why does one, let's say, get the benefit of the doubt to be able to build or take bumps and bruises in this process of getting a franchise turned around when others are not afforded that latitude. We see at the collegiate level, and we've seen that in the history at the professional level. I mean, look at the fact that uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, Zach, uh, Zach uh, Taylor is their head coach. Uh, the Bengals did not fire him after two losing seasons. So year three, they're going to the Super Bowl. Uh, and so, but here's the deal that people have to understand. Troy Vincent 
works for the NFL. When you say work for the NFL, he doesn't work for Roger Goodell. Yes, he reports to Roger Goodell. Roger Goodell works for the owners. The NFL is owned by 32 people. All white men except one, Pakistani-American Shahid Khan, the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars. That is the reality. They run the NFL. They control the NFL. They sign off on who gets to be the head coach, team president, general manager. We've seen this cycle. Two black GMs have been hired. You have, of course, uh, the brother uh, Jason uh, with uh, Jason Wright with the with uh, the Washington football team. He is the team president, first time in in history. But the NFL, when it comes to the executive suite, it is essentially white men only. I mean, the owners can make the change. They can almost overnight make the change if they decided to, because you know they're signing the checks and people are going to follow their lead. It's really that simple. Um, you know, we may not find that in lots of other spaces, but when it comes to the NFL, it, there's a very clear line of how change can actually happen. So if they wanted to have, you know, more black coaches, it could happen pretty much, you know, overnight. Yeah, of course, there has to be a process that folks go through where interviewing those types of things. We want to have more GMs. They could make that happen. They have no problem and going out and finding black bodies to be on the football field, catching the football, sometimes now throwing the football um, or running the football. But, you know, when it comes to giving the opportunity for folks to actually use their mental capabilities as a head coach has to do, then they have a more difficult time in being able to evolve and to accept that as a part of a 21st century NFL. And, you know, and we have some responsibility also because we have to continue to push to hold people accountable. And look, here's the deal. One of the things that, um, that, that I said with Colin Kaepernick, you, you sort of had this loose confederation of people who were calling for a boycott, don't watch NFL games, don't buy uh, jerseys, don't wear them as well. Well, here's one of the things, Demario, it was never organized. It was, now, you had some pockets, some cities, but you did not have a consistent effort to boycott. So what Brian Flores is going to need, he's going to need backup. The question is, will he get backup from the players? Will he get backup from other black coaches? Will he get backup from white coaches? And how is the black community also going to respond? Also, the Latino community, because he's Afro-Latino, how are they going to respond as well? I mean, you really hit hit it on the nail right there, Roland. When you talk about boycotts and all that stuff, that's 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 great. Um, but the NFL players have a union. Now we talk a lot on this show about the power of police unions. We just talked about it last segment and how police unions are able to control police departments and cities. Where you have an NFL union that is filled with black NFL players that they should be in better control of the NFL's policies, in my opinion. I got some good friends that work over at the NFLPA, and I know they're doing hard work each and every day. But I would like to see the black players be stronger on these issues. And then the black coaches, they don't have as much leverage as those black players. But I definitely want to see the black players be stronger and the union be stronger on these issues. Because as Brother Mustafa stated, these owners, they have all the power. The only people that can really check them are the players. Yes. People are going to go to football games. 
People are going to the football games are going to be packed. It's just what it's going to be. People are going to watch football on TV. That's what it's going to be. It's the greatest live entertainment shows in the world. The most drama-filled, unscripted in the world is football. It is the, the passion of America. But the NFL black players have the leverage. We need to get to our players, educate them, work with them. For instance, I've seen some of you have seen during the football games, these commercials where they're talking about inequality and they got a brother dancing and the music. Like, oh, and, and, they also, and also they also have a painting in the end zone in racism. What 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 is that? That is not moving the dial. It, it takes all of us putting a decal on the back of the helmet. We need to be able to t our brothers to be able to say that is not enough. That is not moving the dial. That is not imp improving the lives of my community, giving our people better equity and opportunities that we deserve. That's the type of conversations we need to have with the NFL P uh, PA. That's the type of conversations we need to have with people that have influence over the NFL. Uh, it is uh, quite interesting uh, that uh, it's quite interesting, uh, Mustafa, uh, that uh, you have this lawsuit file. And again, uh, this season, uh, this is what you saw all throughout the NFL right here uh, in racism in the end zone. But then they get hit with a racism lawsuit by the by one of their black coaches. I mean, come on now. We know that that's window dressing. That that's exactly what it is. Because when you peel it back, and when you find, you know, one black coach, um, or maybe we'll be blessed to have two or three, uh, and then we start to go throughout all these positions of power and influence that actually can make real change happen, then what we find is that they have not yet ended racism. So I'm very thankful to Brother Flores for on the beginning of Black History Month to make sure that an institution as large and as economically influential as the NFL is being called out, a spotlight placed on them, and saying that if you truly want to end racism, then let's get down to the hard work. Teresa, the, the thing that um, we got to think about here um, is that um, folks talk about the Rooney Rule, uh, which calls for the NFL uh, for NFL team to interview at least one one minority candidate. Well, people, what folks don't realize is that uh, it was uh, Johnny Cochran and attorney Cyrus Meary. Uh, they were the ones uh, who threatened to sue the NFL uh, as a result. So, so this this goes back to this goes back to almost two decades. Now, many people have complained that these teams have gotten around the rule by having these sham interviews. Brian Flores has talked about that. Okay, fine, just throw in a black candidate and we'll deal with that. The Fritz Pilot Alliance, which is uh, tasked with trying to help these teams with it, they've complained about teams circumventing this. We've had examples where uh, I remember when Jerry Jones was hiring a head coach, he already knew he was going to hire Bill Parcells. Uh, and they, they did this sham interview with different coaches. And then they brought in Sherman Lewis, who was the offensive coordinator of the uh, Green Bay Packers, and a, you know, a, bright, you know, a bright mind, you know, a star. They came in, oh, oh, he had an amazing interview. Oh, my God, it was wonderful. Sherman Lewis never became a head coach in the NFL. White boys who were offensive coordinators left and right were becoming head coaches. That brother never got a shot. And so, now, now, Johnny Cochran has since passed away. Cyrus Meary is still alive. I called him and texted him 
uh, coming into the show today. He hit me back. Hopefully I can try to connect with him because what he said then was it's clear they're not going to move without a lawsuit. And, and this is the thing that well, I keep trying to tell African-Americans. People were complaining about, you know, again, us going after advertisers. People complain in other fields. Teresa, you can't show me an example in American history where black people got stuff just because. The fact of the matter is, we've had to shout, yell, scream, threaten lawsuits, act a fool to get white folks to do what's right in America. And that's what Brian Flores is here saying. I got to sue y'all because otherwise you ain't going to do right by us. And honestly, it looks like that's the American way to do it. I mean, if we have to be the Brian Flores, the Martin Luther Kings, the Malcolm X of past and present time, we have to look at, you know, some of the systematic issues that has caused us to even get to this place of where we are continuously fighting for position, fighting for business, fighting for contracting. It's like, unfortunately, with black and brown communities and individuals that are trying to even flourish their businesses, they have to almost be like crabs in a barrel in order to get something done. Or it's it's almost like we're begging or we have to have a reduced rate in order for um, our, our business uh, to be on the same level as everything else. It's interesting that we, we still have to, again, have these conversations going into um, probably when we started the new millennium and then now we're, you know, um, in 2020, well, 2022. But again, it, it takes the... the the leaders that nobody is really, you know, they're thinking everything is is great. And I, and I see like, you know, when we start looking at some of these interviews that are, are taking place from the organizations and some of the statements that are going out, like, oh, we went through the process. But then we hear a man like Brian Flores, who's like, I went to dinner, you know, and, you know, I had to do the dog and pony show and they've already made their decision. And, you know, the, it's, it's, it's disheartening. Because it's like you, you prepare, you prepare, and it, it, it's assumingly, you know, we're, we're hoping for a fair and just process, but it still doesn't work. So overall, it just has to be a, a, a better system, but knowing that the system that we're in is America, and then that system is essentially, if, we, if they don't want to hear us, then probably just put us in our right and just position without all the fanfare. Uh, and the people who are now also going to be on front and center, Demario, are players. What you going to do? Are you going to say something? Or are you going to say, hey, man, ain't my thing? You know, I think it just really <clears throat> depends what who the player is. In my experience working with players for almost 20 years, many of them was just really did, was focused on their craft. And you can't blame anybody for being focused on their craft. But now they got more information, have more exposure. I think you will see more players step up. Now, What's interesting about the Brian Flores case also is this guy was a systems guy, okay? You got to understand, to be a young brother to get where he's going, I mean, he was doing everything that the, the NFL wanted him to do. He was doing everything the coaches wanted him to do to get to that particular level. This means he did all of that. He still got treated like that Jay-Z song about OJ. So it's just a good lesson that we all can learn and remember to make sure that we are uh, crossing our eyes, dying our eyes, crossing our T's, keeping the receipts as he's done with emails and text messages, and don't be afraid to push the envelope. And understand that, unfortunately, 
It may cost you some type of retaliation. You will probably suffer some consequences, but it may be necessary for the greater good. So not everybody is, is set up to be on the front line. Everybody is set up to be able to take all the arrows and the, and the, and the shots that's going to come their way. But he hopefully has some players in his corner that can stand with him, and hopefully that law firm, which the, the little bit of the complaint that I've seen so far is written tremendously. I, I've applied the law firm, and again, I'm looking to get the next phone call to bring the next historic case. All right, folks, hold tight one second. Got to go to a break. We come back. We'll talk with Texas Congressman Al Green about a variety of issues, including President Joe Biden's pick of a black woman to the Supreme Court. Uh, that uh, and more uh, right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Don't forget, download the app, folks. All platforms, of course, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire, uh, Xbox One, and Samsung, Samsung Smart TV. Be sure to support us as well uh, with your resources. Of course, you can Join, uh, support us via Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered. Uh, Venmo is RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Zell is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered.com. Folks, I'll be back uh, in a moment. you think it's time to get wealthy? I'm Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach, and my new show on the Black Star Network focuses on the things your financial advisor or bank isn't telling you. So watch Get Wealthy on the Black Star Network. a chair take your seat the black tape with me dr greg carr here on the black star network every week we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in join the conversation only on the black star network we're all impacted by the culture whether we know it or not from politics to music and entertainment. It's a huge part of our lives, and we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Jackie Hood-Martin, and I have a question for you. Ever feel as if your life is teetering and the weight and pressure of the world is consistently on your shoulders? Well, let me tell you, living a balanced life isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, pull ourselves together, and cheer each other on. So join me for new shows each Tuesday on Black Star Network, a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Civil rights activist, Fannie Lou Hamer. Well, I'm sure Fannie Lou Hamer will be saying she's sick and tired of not seeing a black woman appointed to the Supreme Court. Boy, these white conservatives are just beside themselves because President Joe Biden made it clear he is going to appoint one. Now, they ain't say a damn thing when Ronald Reagan said in 1980 he was going to appoint a woman at the Supreme Court, probably because they knew it was going to be a white woman. And then, of course, they ain't say nothing when Donald Trump said in 2020 he was going to appoint a woman to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away in September of 2020, probably because they knew it was going to be a white woman. But that is the reality in America. Joining us right now is Texas Congressman Al Green, my frat brother from uh, Houston. Congressman, you, you, you got to just laugh at at these folks for showing who they really are by being so upset by the fact that in about 115 Supreme Court justices, 108 have been white men. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with your refrain. They didn't say anything. We have seen what I call exclusionary affirmative action. And that means that for some 200-plus years, we have had affirmative action for white males used to exclude others. Uh, we have had in the United States Senate, for example, uh, a number of senators, uh, including 100, uh, 1,944. And of that 1,944, 1, 1,886 have been men. The number just staggers and blows my mind, 58 women. Now, I mentioned the Senate because this shows you who selects these judges over these years. Uh, the presidents have all been men, all white, but one. Forty-five presidents, only one black male, no women. So the numbers speak for themselves. Over the years, we've had affirmative action for white males. Now we're getting inclusionary affirmative action. And the inclusionary affirmative action is something that seems to be repulsive to some people because we are trying now to bring about some degree of equity in the system. And I'm just pleased that I have lived long enough to see representational diversity become an issue on the Supreme Court. It is time for a black woman to be appointed. Uh, and so certainly the U.S. the, the, the uh, Senate is going to take that up. And so hopefully uh, President Biden has already said he will uh, pick someone by the end of this month. Uh, and Senator Chuck Schumer said we'll, we'll confirm that person uh, in about a month. So we'll see uh, what happens there. Um, of course, the Build Back Better bill by President Biden uh, went down in flames because of Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. 
president said they're going to break that up into smaller pieces. Uh, there was a lot of money in uh, that bill for HBCUs and other things of interest to African Americans. And so what do you say? What is moving forward? How is this going to actually happen? Uh, is it going to be breaking it up? What, what's first? Well, I hear more talk about breaking it up currently than I've heard before. There seems to be a desire to make sure that we take care of children, uh, make sure that we have universal pre-K for all of these children who are three or four years of age. There seems to be a real desire to make sure that we get people covered. Uh, in the state of Texas, for example, we had $100 billion that was available to us that we did not take for Medicaid. So there's a desire to make sure that we don't have people without insurance in this country. Uh, these things are important, but I still would like to see us take up the bill in its entirety. And my hope is, and you can't plan uh, on hope, but my hope is that uh, these two senators will rethink their positions. After all, President Biden at one time was opposed to the elimination of the filibuster, but he has changed his position. It's not unusual for people to change their positions in politics. My hope is that the two senators will so that we can move forward because there's much more in the bill of benefit as well. Uh, last uh, question I have for you deals with the issue of uh, voting rights. Uh, it continues to be a battle. Lawsuits are taking place all across the country, including ones uh, happening there in Texas. What is your thoughts about this, uh, this retiring Republican in Texas who has come forward to say the GOP absolutely deliberately violated the Voting Rights Act when they were redrawing districts? My hope is that we can get that type of testimony in court. I'm uh, one of the litigants. Uh, I believe that the state of Texas has not treated uh, persons of uh, Hispanic ancestry fairly. Uh, most of the growth was in the Latino community. 95% of the growth was among uh, persons of color. And I think that uh, we need that kind of testimony in court. Uh, I appreciate what people say to us uh, by way of the airwaves, but if we can get it in court, I think that we can get these lines redrawn so, such that Texas will have a representation that matches the citizenry, the people who actually live in the state of Texas. All right. Congressman Al Green, always good to see you. Thanks so much good for joining us. Too. Thank you. All right, folks, going to go to a quick break. We come back. We're going to talk about young folks under massive pressure to achieve life's goals. That was one of the things that uh, Chesley, uh, of course, Chris talked about in a piece she wrote last year. She jumped off of a building, killing herself on Sunday. We're going to talk to two experts about this. It's something that we're seeing a lot in young folks today. That is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network.
am Dr. Jackie Hood-Martin, and I have a question for you. Ever feel as if your life is teetering and the weight and pressure of the world is consistently on your shoulders? Well, let me tell you, living a balanced life isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, pull ourselves together, and cheer each other on. So join me for new shows each Tuesday on Black Star Network, a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're SWV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Last year, Miss USA 2019 TV correspondent and lawyer Chesley Christ, who died suddenly after jumping from a New York high-rise building, penned this article in Allure. In the piece, she described the pressures she felt to achieve. She wrote, when I graduated from college and opted to continue my studies at Wake Forest University, I decided I'd earn a law degree and an MBA at the same time. Why stop at two degrees when you can have three? I joined the trial team at school and won a national championship. I competed in moot court, won essay competitions, and earned local, regional, and national executive board positions. I nearly worked myself to death, literally, until an eight-day stint in a local hospital sparked the development of a new perspective. She continued, I discovered that the world's most important question, especially when asked repeatedly and answered frankly, is why? Why earn more achievements just to collect another win? Why pursue another plaque or medal or line item on my resume if it's for vanity's sake rather than out of passion? Why work so hard to capture the dreams I've been taught by society to want when I continue to find only emptiness. Folks, they said she died at the age of 30. She left a note. In the note, she asked that all of her belongings uh, be given to her mother. Uh, this is something that we have seen uh, from uh, a variety of uh, folks. We've seen this take place uh, all across the country. Joining us right now uh, is psychologist Dr. Jeffrey Gardier and also licensed professional counselor Robin May, my panelists still with me as well. I mean, this is <clears throat> the reason I want to have this conversation is that first off, first off, um, we do not know why, what took place. We don't know that. We haven't heard from her family. We haven't heard from anyone talk about uh, what she uh, had been dealing with. Yesterday, we had Dr. Tro uh, Troy Byer on talking about uh, people who do uh, commit suicide. And she, she talked about typically how we don't hear from them for a couple of weeks between uh, that, that, that period when they, they make that decision. And one of the things that Chesley said in her last Instagram post, and apparently was posted around uh, 6.30 Sunday morning, and police say it was around 8.15 when she jumped from, jumped from the 29th floor. Uh, she uh, posted this where she said, um, may this day bring you rest in peace. Uh, Jeff, I'm gonna start with you because again, let me be clear, we do not know why this decision was made. But for her to write that piece, talking about these pressures, talking about how she felt as she approached 30, her, that her life was ending. We're talking 30. We're talking about a, a person and, and many people um, who are part of that profile of being told by society 
that they need to achieve, 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 achieve. They need to prove all of these things in order to be able to keep up with everyone else and to be uh, eligible for these accolades that they need to give of themselves one million percent. But what we're not telling them is that they need a work-life balance. What we're not telling them is the importance of happiness and being connected to family and taking care of oneself. And once you get certain accolades, making sure that you have built in a system where you can be, where you can decompress, de-stress, and take care of yourself, mind, body, and spirit. Robin, she also talked about bullying, how she had to deal with people who were coming on her pages who felt that her physique was too muscular when she won Miss USA, who talked about her hair, her skin tone. Serena Williams has had to deal with that, and Venus. People who have been critical of them. Oh, my goodness, you look like men as well. And, 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 and she talked about how that had an impact on her, those comments from people. And so here you have this incredibly gorgeous woman, extremely smart, extremely talented, who is talking about how that even was taking a toll on her, someone who we would think is supremely confident. Yeah. So let me say this. Um, our soul has a capacity. Let's just sit right there. Our soul has a capacity. There's only so much our soul can take. And we were not created to be able to handle the critique of the entire world. And that is what social media has created, where we can literally, particularly when you're someone like this beautiful young woman who has been elevated into a position where people around the world see her, the critique of the world would be daunting for someone who is 60. Surely it's daunting for someone who is 30. And so I can absolutely understand how what we know are trolls can over time have an impact. You know, one of the things people who are often in the public eye are told by those who have been there much longer, stay out of your comments, because over time it can be exhausting. And literally, Roland, it is heartbreaking, but it is not uncommon. I have often young women who sit in my office at 25 and 30 and feel that they have not hit, if they have not hidden a certain level of success, then they are already a failure. And so I believe this conversation is really about us redefining what our what winning means, redefining what success means, but more importantly, learning to reevaluate our expectations and how much access we give others to us. To the, uh, to the specific point about comments as it relate to women, because frankly, how women deal with that is far differently than how men deal with it. But on this particular yes, point absolutely. of the pressure, the pressure to succeed, uh, I mean, we're seeing this, um, and, and speak to this if you can, we're seeing this showing up in junior high and high school. We're seeing it in elementary school. You do, look, <clears throat> my six nieces were with us. My wife told them point blank, y'all got one activity a year. I'm sorry, a semester. It's six of y'all. 
Ain't no way in hell you're going to be doing five different things individually. We ain't going from soccer to basketball to ballet to band. No, we ain't doing all that. And, and, and so... Carlin, can I just jump in? Because let me tell you, I'm living that, right? I have three daughters. I am literally living that right now. I have a 7-year-old. I have a 12-year-old. And I have a 14-year-old. Roland, right now, at this moment, my husband just ran from the school to take my 12-year-old to gymnastics. He had to go back and pick her up after gymnastics to take her to track. And so I think, really, even you saying that, yes, I had to sit my 12-year-old down and explain to her, listen, you literally felt like you were overwhelmed carrying all of this stuff last year. And so it is our responsibility to jump in and help you understand that at 12 years old, you don't have to carry all of that. But again, it goes back to the expectation that is put on not only adults, to your point, but to children. So that's why I said this is a conversation about redefining what success looks like. And success is not... This, hear me, this is very important. Because I believe what has happened is that success is linked to status and what's in your checking account. Oh, yeah. Instead of success being linked to who you are as a person. And Jeff, before you even get to the stats of the checking account, it's, it's look, you got to get that scholarship. You got to get that full ride. You got to go to the Ivy League school. You got to go to that top school. And so if you're at elementary school, junior high and high school, you're like, damn. Yeah, and that's part of the issue. Uh, this is absolutely correct, what we're hearing. This is a problem where we are, uh, in many ways, programming our kids towards success, 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 but we're not working with them around their mental wellness. If there's one thing we've learned about COVID is that children have psychology, children have personality, children have emotions. And if we're not addressing those things with regard to all of the activities, with regard to all of the academics, and we're just loading them up for success, but not addressing how they feel about certain things or talking about that, then those things become internalized. And as they grow up, there's a profound sadness and anger and instability that can then put them at risk for serious emotional uh, issues, as well as even suicide. Uh, Jeff, I know you have to go, so I want, I want to ask you this before you leave. That is, all right, somebody's watching. They're a parent or they're someone who is thinking the same way what, what, what Chesley is saying. What do you tell them to do right now, how they can sort of slow themselves down? I think it's absolutely important to sit down with your child through a series of conversations and listen to what they have to say. Listen to what their dreams are. Listen to the things that may be bothering them, the things that are causing them any kind of stress, and then address that with them as to how you can find more of a balance with them. Children have a lot to say out of the mouth of babes. I think we've forgotten that, but I think we have to learn about that all over again. Jeff Gard, Dr. Jeff Gardier, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Look forward to having you back. Uh, we're going to keep the conversation going here uh, with Robin, bringing my panel in as well. So, again, Jeff, thanks a lot. Uh, safe travels to you. Th this is... It, 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 it was so heartbreaking to, to see this story because, again, you're looking at all of... You, you're looking at, on the outside looking in, what you're seeing is this young lady, again, 30, lawyer, MBA, Miss USA, on, on correspondent on Extra,
and you're sitting there going, oh my God, you've got all so much ahead of you. You look at these photos and you look at her laugh and her smile, but the reality is she was carrying around something that was so heavy, that was so difficult. She talked about often several times dealing with anxiety where for her, Robin, the only escape from it was death, jumping 29 floors off of a building. You know, um, when I look, I mean, I'm going to be honest, Roland, I do this for a living. And when I found out about this, I literally went down a spiral. I went down a rabbit hole on her um, Instagram. And I almost found myself doing the very thing that many of the people in the comments were doing, which was, it looks like everything is fine. She looks like she's okay. And I do this. And I literally had that thought come up as well. And what I want anybody listening is to understand that what we see, what we present is just the picture we want you to see. And you know, if we're honest, we're not to put all of our business on social media. Anybody that has a little bit of maturity knows that social media is not to pour all of that. So it's just a glimpse. And we want to make sense of it, Roland. That's what's that. We want to make sense of it. But the truth is, when the pain is to that level, once the pain is triggered to that level, in the midst of that moment, trying to make sense of it is not the answer. I truly believe that this idea of, expect of perfection, this idea of having it all, becomes a weight to the very point we made. It becomes a weight that is entirely too heavy for someone to carry. And so the hidden pain, the unspoken pain, the heavy weight is what we didn't see on social media. She was trained, hear this, she was trained to turn on. So that's what she did on Instagram. We don't know what was going on when the phone was down. To, to that point, in terms of how we deal with it. Um, um, it's very interesting when you tell people, kiss my ass. I have people sit here, go on social media. I, I crack up with people. Man, you need to just go ahead and cut all your hair off. And I tell them, I give no shits about what you think about my hair. I get up in the morning, I brush it, I walk out. I don't care. I'm not caught up in, oh my God, I don't have a full head of hair. Folks will comment on your weight, on your clothes, they'll comment on your height, they'll comment on, and I'm literally like, mm, I don't give a shit what y'all think. And I've actually had that attitude my entire life. I really don't. And I'm thankful for that because I know other people who they get so, oh my God, do you see what they said about my clothes? I'm like, I don't care what they said about your clothes. And to me, I think we have to be fortifying young people very early on and listening and watching out where they're not so locked into this designer clothes. What are you wearing? Uh, I remember being in, being in junior high school, kids were laughing at my shoes, and I'm like, y'all didn't pay for them? And so there was, there was, there was, there was, there was a level of training of education that I got from my parents and from my grandparents where I was conditioned not to be so concerned of what people were saying externally about me that allowed me not to sit here and fall into those peer pressure traps. And I think part of the deal is we have to be very conscious as adults 
but we're not passing that thing on to our children based upon our insatiable desire for the material. Robin, your thoughts on that? Okay, because I said I'll jump in for sure. So, Roland, first of all, I want you to understand that that ability that you have to not be triggered by public opinion is a gift. Quite frankly, it's a gift that you and my husband Lee may have very, very uh, <laughs> uh, similar. Um, and so I will be honest with you. I'm just going to go. I, I tell people I share my stuff so you don't have to share yours. I don't have that trait. I absolutely do care. It absolutely does bother me. And I'm a grown 47-year-old woman who has had to learn to put the boundaries in place, to put the filters in place, and to teach myself not to be consumed by it. I cannot, I have not. I'll say I have not gotten to the point where I just don't care. Where I have gotten now is that I'm not consumed by it. But what you're talking about is the importance of two characteristics, understanding resilience and under and building up your own self-confidence. Resilience and self-confidence, I think, is a skill that or emotional intelligence that we can teach our children. But the truth is... Everyone does not have that. And let's say this, let me just say this also, there is an aspect of wanting to, um, of us needing to be considerate and intentional about, about not living a life where we don't listen to opinion at all. So this is how I teach my children. I tell them to identify who their advisory board is. Who are the two or three, maybe three or four vetted people? I hope my, my husband and I are on that list. But who are the vetted people that you will listen to because you know they have your best interest? And then you can uh, silence out the rest of the noise. And so I think definitely it is a skill. It is something that we have to teach our children. For a lot of us, Roland, it does not come naturally. No, I understand. But... And even those two or three people, whatever. Um, it's, but again, I, it, it, the, the thing that I am, as I, as I look at this, uh, and I'm going to go to Teresa first, um, the, the, the reason why, to me, this, this is so critically important, because I remember, get, I remember being in, a, a I was a freshman, and I was at Yates High School, I'm in the band, and... Um, we had these battles because I came in as a freshman first chair. And folks were mad as hell at me because it was like this whole deal, you can't be a freshman first chair. And I'm kind of like, all right, what a competition at. I mean, in band, you have to beat me out or you don't. They actually brought some former people, former students who were in the band at TSU to try out against me. And I was like, bring your ass was not concerned. And what was a trip, because they were like, why are you so cocky? It's like, I'm not cocky, I was trained. Now, if you want to beat me, put the music on the stand and let's go. And folks were, and it was like this whole, it was like this, they, they were like really were pissed off because I wasn't buckling to, you can't do this because you're a freshman. The reason that is important is because, again, it's how we deal with things in life when we're in competition, when we're battling with people, and when you don't let someone intimidate you, punk you, beat you down, and cause you to start doubting yourself. To me, arrogance was thinking you first chair, but you don't prepare to be first chair. Confidence was, I put in the work. Y'all want to take it from me? Let's go. And I, I, and I look at, 
how I look at nieces and nephews, I look at other people, I look at how parents talk to their kids and what they say and do. And I just think for a lot of us, we're not paying attention to folks early on in terms of how they need to be dealing with what's going to be thrown at them in life. Teresa, uh, your thoughts on this subject, even a question for Robin if you have one. Well, one, thank you, Robin, for um, literally that entire approach. I didn't have a point in your dis uh, your dialogue where I didn't disagree. So I, I thank you for that. Um, I don't necessarily have a question for you, but to the topic that we're talking about right now is um, dealing with the pressures that we need to succeed. Um, look, I think there there is a whole bunch of um, um, opportunities where parents need to kind of step up. Right. I think we have a lot of young parents that hasn't really fully grown themselves. Um, I'm not a young parent myself, so but I have a lot of friends who are. And I think a lot of it is, is that growth period. It's not just having the kid that makes you an adult and makes you grown, but it, it's about the teaching. It's about the advisors. It's about those who are, are giving you that positive energy and that, that positive um, um, network. To, to really allow that kid to be who they want. And so because we're living in a society where uh, anytime you make a post, it can be shared and retweeted and social media is, is when it first started, was causing so much havoc. Um, and now we have cyberbullying. We have a hotline for that. Um, we're now seeing that once you put yourself out there, you can't take it back. And so some of those pressures are even, you know, in relationships. And I have a nephew, he's 16. So I'm constantly telling him whatever picture that you take um, and, and whatever you do and everything you post will be watched and will be um, shown to you in the future. So be very careful about it. But I, I, I think, like, again, like you said, the advisors are something that is necessary. Um, obviously, everybody's not going to be so confident and so independent early on. But it also depends on where you come from. And so, you know, I think, you know, if, even if I look at myself or I look at my friends, um, it, again, the company you keep will absolutely pave the way for your destination. Is it parents should step yeah, up? Robin, is it parents should step up or should some of them step back? I think it can be a combination of both. And you guys, I want us to really consider this. This is so interesting to me. As I parent and my husband, I parent our three daughters, y'all, it is literally getting a PhD in each of their individual personalities. Right. My oldest daughter, I promise you, she has all of my husband. She does not care. She is not moved and she is not bothered. But baby, that middle daughter of mine is. And so that baby of mine thinks the world wakes up when she wakes up. And so we have to really understand our individual child, their makeup. And if for a parent who's listening right now, one of the first things you can do, I tell people all the time, education is extremely important to me. As a mother, these children and their grades are very important. I got an email from the teacher today that said one of my daughters didn't do her homework. She's going to get the business. But more important to me, than their academics. And this is going to be surprising when my husband and I both have higher degrees. More important is to me is their emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is really the factor that will help you stay safe and continue to develop fully as an adult. And so if there's a parent listening who is into this conversation, one of the first things I want you to do is go on Amazon or just Google a feelings chart. 
order the feelings chart and put it on your child's wall and teach your child how to identify what they feel. You hear young people say all the time, I just feel some kind of way. Well, no. What is the feeling? Because it's very important that we are able to process what we are experiencing so that somebody can help us come to some resolve. And so if there is a parent, that's your first takeaway. Order you a feelings chart, put it on your child's wall, and low-key, you might need to put it on your wall so you can understand feelings yourself. <laughs> See, I was about to tell a story when I was at TV One uh, where I had to let, call FYF, but I, I, I'm going to deal with that one later. Uh, <laughs> Mustafa, uh, go ahead. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, you know, I, I struggle with this particular topic. When I was in college, a good friend and teammate um, actually took his life. And, you know, it was like folks only talked about it for a day, and then it was like he didn't really exist anymore. And I know for communities of color, we often don't want to have to deal with that. Um, and, and I carried a lot of uh, anger for a long time because I was mad at myself for not seeing that he was in that much pain um, and, and for not asking or knowing what the questions were to ask. So I know there's so many people watching. How do we make sure that we are staying connected to folks, um, even though folks sometimes, you know, they, 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 um, they have these veneers on? where we think everything is all right, um, but it's not. And, and I just want to make sure that that never happens again. Um, and I know I need emotional intelligence um, to be able to, to, yeah. to navigate and, and to let go of some of the things. You know, I want to first tell you, I'm so sorry that that was an experience for you. And I can totally imagine how, can only, I'm sorry, imagine how devastating it, it was. And you know, this is gonna be really tough, but I'm gonna go here. One of the things I saw a lot, particularly after this, and I've seen it many times before, you've seen the memes that says, check on your strong friends. And I understand the sentiment behind that. And we should, we should, we should check on all of our friends. But the idea of that almost places the blame on everybody else when what we need to do, and this is what I do for a living, I create safe spaces for tough conversations. What we want to be able to do with the people in our life is to make sure that we have created spaces where we can really go there, where I can ask you, no, girl, I saw that you said you were okay on Facebook, but I know my girl, you've been isolating a little bit. Or being able to say, now, girl, I know we've been enjoying ourselves, but you didn't have one too many drinks, girl. That's not your normal pattern. Creating those safe spaces, and here's the deal. Those safe spaces have to be continuously created. Now, you may not be able to do that with all 50 of your friends, but you may make a pact. Somebody listening right now, you may make a pact with about five of your closest friends and you're going to say, we're going to be each other's safe space and we're going to have the courage to ask each other the hard questions. And if you're not answering the call, girl, after about three days, you already know we're going to show up on your doorstep. I want us to make intentional efforts to have safe spaces so that we can dialogue. And then make sure that you're normalizing, even in your own circle, normalizing therapy, saying it is nothing wrong. Be careful of using the crazy word or, or uh, dismissing or minimizing people who get help. Encourage it. Talk about it. Even if you yourself 
yourself have to have a list of therapists in your phone that you just send to people, hey, girl, I know you may need some help, or I'm talking to you, so you might say, hey, bruh, I guess that's what y'all say. You might say, hey, bruh, I want to make sure you know that we can chat. And so what we want to do is not take on the response. If, if my heart breaks for her family, my heart literally breaks for her family because I know the journey they're going to go on. And I know that there is going to be so much questioning that they're going to have. And so, unfortunately, I can't keep them from that. But hopefully we can help someone who's watching now create safe spaces, encourage those you love to seek help. But if you are the person who is hurting, if you are the person in pain, I want you to make sure I always leave Roland with three things that I want you to know. I want if you're the one hurting, I want you to first admit it. I want you to um, make sure you ask for help. And then I want you to accept the help. If you're watching me right now and you know you're in despair and you know you're heavy, that's what I want you to do. I want you to admit it. I want you to ask for help. And then I want you to accept the help. Demario. Man, it's one of the most powerful conversations I've, I've been involved in on this show. I really appreciate it. This is a very, very personal uh, situation or topic for me uh, when I learned about this young lady dying and then learned about her background and all the things she named off before 30, you know, I've been on that track. You know, I've been at the law school. I got the, also the master's degree. I did the national executive board stuff. I did all the accolades and being a shining star from my hood and all that stuff. Built my law firm 2007 to 2012, 13. We were just flying high. Everything was great. Hit a bad spell. Things was just really going bad. And yeah, I can have the exterior outside like, man, I'm the man, I'm Demario, whatever. But internally, as my sister just said, hey, man, I was, I was struggling. I kept that so strong inside of myself that out in Los Angeles, California, my wife, she's filming something. I wake up one morning, I got Bell's palsy. And for those who don't know what Bell's palsy is, it's twisted my face over. I couldn't talk. That's what I did for a living. I talked. I couldn't talk. I thought I had a stroke. Luckily, I didn't have a stroke. It was like this, was like Bell's palsy for about two, two and a half months, almost three months. I wouldn't have told you I had Bell's palsy. You wouldn't know. I was very fortunate to have full recovery. But it was stress. It was the lack of getting uh, counseling, because at that time, I didn't think brothers got counseling. I thought that was somebody, if you were crazy or you, you were weak, you had to get therapy or counseling. And then, you know, just still come a few months, years later, my wife and I struggling with infertility for over 10 years, finally brought me to the point of, man, I need it. I, I can't do all this by myself. And I've been in therapy now, going on three years, and it's been the best decision of my life. I go mostly weekly. Shout out to Dr. Dr. Siri, my therapist. And so, you know, if you if you need help, as the sister just stated, get the help you need. This is real. This will cause you to break down your families, break down your bodies. And as we saw with the good sister who appears that committed suicide, you know, she she, she lost her, she took a life. And uh, men in America, what we deal with as black people is serious each and every day. It is an attack on every facet of our emotional, physical and spiritual beings. 
It is not enough just to pray. It is not enough just to uh, hang out. It is not enough just to say, I want to be cool. You have to get the help you need. And I know, Roland, you had on the hotline if somebody's having suicide uh, prevention. I think this sister, Dr. May, uh, her number should be up and other therapist numbers should be up and, and, and normalize what you said, uh, Dr. May. I can, I'm proud with my boys now. We talk about therapy all the time. We have a safe space on our WhatsApp app. It is something that we can talk to. And I still got people in my family. It's not just young parents. <laughs> it's not just young people. In fact, for most, I'm 45, so most black people young, older than us, you talk about a therapist, you say, hey, I ain't crazy. We got to have those conversations with our parents, our grandparents, our uncles, and, and make them understand, you know, the things that we're holding on to, that trauma that we're holding on to. It's really causing us problems. So I just really appreciate this segment because it's real. It don't matter who you are, how tough you think you are. We all need help. We all need to have a better emotional opportunities to express ourselves, get stronger. So I appreciate this segment, Roland. And I appreciate Dr. May and the doctor that was on earlier that had to get off earlier. Appreciate it. Robin? You know, I want you to know um, very clearly, I had chills listening to you, and I truly believe that that, what you just said, almost needs to be put into a bite and, and blasted around, because you as a Black male saying that so confidently and so boldly, I truly believe you just changed some lives. And so thank you for that. And absolutely, what I want us to understand, and this, this is so important because you talked about the stress you were carrying and, and being on the same track that she was. And what I want us to understand that you might've been listening to him and you might've said, well, that's not my thing. I don't have that kind of pressure. Whatever your weight is, here's the deal. If I go to the gym, Okay, I don't go to the gym. But if I were to go to the gym, <laughs> um, let's say I'm 15. <laughs> let's just say, I don't even know. I don't know. Can I lift 100 pounds? Let's say I'm lifting 100 pounds. You like, if I go to the gym, let me stop lying. I don't go to the gym. Let me go. <laughs> I ain't going to even lie. I'm a first lady. First ladies ain't going to lie. So if I'm at the gym and I'm lifting 100 pounds, and this woman next to me is lifting 200 pounds, she can look at me and think that I'm not doing anything. But this 100 pound is heavy for me. Why am I saying that? Just because it's not heavy for you doesn't mean it's not heavy for the next person. You don't have to minimize what you are carrying. So while his story may not have been your story, while my story may not be your story, whatever you're carrying is heavy. And I want everybody to know, I say this just about every time I'm on Roland Martin, but what I want all of us to understand that what all of us have been carrying collectively not only with the pandemic, but definitely with the pandemic, but also with the social and civil unrest that has been going on now for just about two years to a higher level than it has in our lifetime. Those two things alone rise to the level of a trauma. If you watched any of the videos with the brutality that has occurred, it rises to the level of a trauma. That alone is worth seeking help. And then I wanted to say this as we begin to close, Roland, and to everyone on the panel, we talk about expectations and we talk about um, this beautiful young woman, the expectations she carried, but we have to realize she was in an industry filled with expectation. Mm -hmm. She was in an industry that was all about what you look like and how you present. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I want us to make sure that we're doing is that we are teaching others and that we're teaching young people and that we ourselves understand 
I know it can sound like fluff, but we really need to understand values-based living. Who are you really? What do you really desire? What do you really long for? What really matters to you? If you are all about the Benjamins, do people say, still say the Benjamins? If you're all about the Benjamins, I want you to peel back the layers and figure out why. What is the value? Why is that important? Because when you're very clear on your values and you're living according to your values, your values can serve as a blockade, as a block, as a filter from all the noise around you. It's just one of the strategies that can help you build resilience. You know, I don't want her life to be in vain. So if anything we can do, we can all decide today that we're going to do one thing to care for our souls, one thing to make sure we're building up our mental health, making sure we're reaching out to somebody that we love. That's how we can honor her life, by doing one thing differently than we did before. I'm going to close with this. Uh, and, uh, and I need people to understand in terms of how, you, again, how you must change your thinking. Um, trolls, my haters, they, they love to say stuff like, oh, uh, you just sitting here uh, saying this stuff for the white man to get a job back on a network television. Nah, I'm good. See, what they don't understand is I'm happy for brothers and sisters who are at those places, but that ain't me. Because what people don't understand, and again, what I'm trying to get people to understand is how do you measure yourself? I don't go, ooh, uh, so-and-so got this, so-and-so got this. No, I've always measured myself by me. See, when your expectation is your own personal expectation, then you're not driven by what other people uh, have, what pe other people are driving. You know, when we did, when we, when I, I said this before, when we, when we, um, uh, Back in December 2020, when I purchased our Mercedes Sprinter for the show for us to be able to broadcast across the country. The next month, I said, damn, this is the first Mercedes I ever owned. I started laughing in my driveway. Now, why did I laugh? Because I grew up with people who were fixated. It was like, oh, my God, I got to get this car. I got to get this car. I ain't never really give a damn about a car. Seriously, I could not wash my navigator for a year and really wouldn't care as long as it keep running. See, again, it's when you aren't so concerned and you don't allow the external forces to drive this. It's when you allow this to say, this is what makes me happy, this is what makes me feel good, and I am measuring myself by this. So for me, when I look at this studio, I look at staff, when I look at places we're going, we're covering, I'm perfectly happy. I'm good. I'm not worried about somebody who's making $10 million. I shout out my girl, Angela Rye. Go to my computer. She just signed a deal with a special correspondent at ESPN uh, for the next year. Congratulated her. I don't feel as if, oh, my God, why do they call me? I'm glad they call her. Great. But a lot of people continue to measure themselves by what their friends have, their frat brothers, their sorority sisters, their church members, and their colleagues as opposed to saying, what makes me happy? What makes me content? And so I think a lot of folks, uh, again, who are, no matter, I'm 53, Demar, you talked about it. A lot of us need to be looking at ourselves a lot differently in terms of what do we value? 
because oftentimes that stress and anxiety is really from that external stuff that in the end, you can't take that shit with you anyway. So why are you letting it drive your ass crazy now? We have to also encourage therapy. There's a brother who on the channel says, ooh, therapy is for rich folks. No, it's not. We had the brother on the show with the coffee shop in Chicago where proceeds are going to support uh, mental health. There are resources that are out there. We have churches, we have community centers, we have different avenues that people are providing the necessary services. So for us, let's stop making excuses that say we can't afford it or people in the hood can't afford it. What we should be doing is letting the folks in the hood know where to get it. That's what we should be doing. Robert, Robert May, we appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Uh, folks are asking, uh, how can they reach you? Do you have a website, anything like that? Yes, it's robinmayonline.com. And I just have to say to the brother who said therapy is too expensive, listen, clinicians of color, that's a whole group called clinicians of color, but clinicians of color, most of us do something to, pro to provide low-cost therapy. So don't let that be an excuse. Again, my website is robinmayonline.com. All right, Robin, tell them kids they're doing too damn much. Can I just say one other thing? I am. I'm gonna tell them, Uncle. I'm gonna tell them my frat brother. Tell them they doing too much. I ain't look. You think I ain't like? Hey, y'all, y'all nice. I'm like, look, I ain't, I ain't. Look, my parents had five kids in four different schools. My dad was like, look, I ain't doing all this damn driving around. He hated to pick me up from school of communication events where he was like. You got to stay late. I was like, look, man, this is going to set me up. He cool now because all that picking up, <laughs> he benefiting from that. But, uh, but the point is, he was like, man, y'all like, uh, got one activity each. Five kids, one activity each. You don't get more than that. Uh-uh, that's too much. Hey, I'm going to tell him Uncle Roland said it. Demario, go real quick. I just want to say it's clear that you didn't listen to any advisors because you pledged out for so. You didn't have to tell everybody you don't listen to anyone. He we did see right. Every day. He did right. Ski five. You didn't listen right. to some better advisors. No, no. You might have been a little bigger, but you know. Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't need advisors because all I did was read. And I read Thurgood Marshall, and I read Dr. King, and I read Duke Ellington, well, you know and I read, I'm not done, I'm not done, and I'm not done, and I read, and I read Jesse Owens, and I read Ralph Metcalf, and I read John A. Johnson. So if you would like for me to continue reciting all the names of prominent alpha men, we don't have that much time in the day to do so. I just said you didn't have good advisors, my friend. I'm just letting you know, and yes, we know that an Omega created Black History Month, but Alpha, we celebrate Black History 365. Robin, thanks a bunch. I appreciate it. Uh, and Mustafa. Thank y'all for having me. And, and see, thanks a lot. <laughs> and you notice I ain't even asked for backup because Mustafa's also an Alpha. So just sit there and be quiet, Demario. All right, y'all. When we come back, our Marketplace segment, a, a sister. Black-owned construction company. Her and her dad started. He passed away, but she is continuing the vision. Y'all don't want to turn. Y'all don't want to miss this because we're talking about black folks who own, not those who are waiting on a check from somebody else. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network, 100% black-owned.
all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives, and we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network. Hi, I'm Dr. Jackie Hood Martin, and I have a question for you. Ever feel as if your life is teetering and the weight and pressure of the world is consistently on your shoulders? Well, let me tell you, living a balanced life isn't easy. Join me each Tuesday on Black Star Network for a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. We'll laugh together, cry together, pull ourselves together, and cheer each other on. So join me for new shows each Tuesday on Black Star Network, a balanced life with Dr. Jackie. I'm Godfrey, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. And while he's doing Unfiltered, I'm practicing the wobble. All right, folks, um, I want you to stick around at the end of the show because, first of all, I'm going to give you all a sneak peek into the 10-part docuseries uh, that we are doing uh, on the 1619-2019 year of return. Uh, y'all get to see that, and so y'all want to stick around for that also after the show. We'll be streaming, uh, of course, Balanced Life with Dr. Jackie Hood-Martin, the conversation we just had. Well, we have a weekly show that's all about that, helping you live a balanced life. And so, again, you want to stick around uh, for that because we got some great content, and that's what we're doing here on the Black Star Network. Uh, just some phenomenal stuff. Of course, uh, we launched Deborah Owen's show on Monday. Uh, yesterday, uh, we, uh, of course, we also launched uh, today. Uh, Dr. Jackie Hill Martin show tomorrow. We got our next uh, rolling, rolling with Roland with uh, director uh, Bill Duke. Uh, y'all remember him uh, from Minister Society? Yeah, y'all remember. You don't? Yeah, yeah, you remember that. Uh, then also today we kicked off uh, Faraji Muhammad's Daily Show, and then uh, on Thursday, uh, Thursday or Friday, tell me which one, Keenan, we're dropping Dr. Greg Carr's show, The Black Table. And so again, fantastic rollout of the new shows this week, and so it's great. All right, we often talk about home ownership. We often talk about of course, uh, construction in terms of us uh, getting businesses and leasing. But what happens when we actually are on the building side? Well, SNR Construction is a black-owned uh, pre-stop shop based uh, in Houston, Texas. That's right, folks. Uh, services include project management, uh, of course, uh, sheeting, painting, and clearing as well. Sakara Ross, she's the president of SNR Construction. She joins us right now from the greatest city in the world, my hometown. Hello, guys. Houston, Texas. How you doing? Oh, wow. Houston's your hometown. I'm born and raised there. I did not know that. Jack okay. Yates High School. Come on now. Which one? JY. Oh, Yates. That's right. That's how we roll. So let's get let's get right to it. Um, was this something that you actually wanted to do uh, growing up? How did, uh, where did, where did this idea of a construction company come from? So, no, it was not something that I initially wanted to do growing up. Um, my grandfather was a carpenter in the 1950s. So my father had a lot of experience um, in construction with carpentry. And I would always see him doing things around the house to improve or even just little projects for, you know, friends or family members. So I've always been around it, but I never really had the desire um, until later on in life, I just had the idea to 
give back to my dad and create a family legacy. So that's really where um, the company originated. I've always had an entrepreneur's um, spirit. So I figured, hey, you know, I'm going to start this company. I'm going to start it for my dad and give him something to do management-wise as he grows older because, you know, my father was, he was a very active man and he was always physical. But we all know as we age, sometimes, you know, you have to slow down and you're unable to do those things. So it was really me um, with the intentions of blessing him. And about a month after I started the company, my father passed. So that blessing for him um, turned out to be a blessing for me. Um, and it's allowed me to take care of myself since my father's passing. When did y'all start uh, the company? Uh, 2017. 2017. Well, the end of 2016. But when we had the hurricane in 2017, that's really when we first got like our bulk of um, business. So that's when we took off. And so why home construction and not commercial? Actually, I've done a little bit of both. Um, so we started out with schools. We started out like repairing schools that got damaged in um, Hurricane Harvey. And then, of course, I got all my city certifications with the um, Houston Business of Opportunity. And that's where I was led into doing residential because there was such a demand and home, like with home repair for these people who, who've been pretty much displaced with the, the hurricane. So that's just something that was there right at the time that I started the company. So we've consistently been blessed with working on that project for the last four years. But, um, you know, construction is, it's, it's very large. It's a large industry. And I've also tapped into civil. And, I, you know, as I've been in this industry, I've had my, my challenges, but I've also been welcomed by so many people um, because I am a young woman and I'm an African-American woman. They've been very receptive and they, they've given me so much insight and helped me along the way, which has allowed me to experience other areas of the industry that, that I never even thought about. So I've worked on civil projects. I've done inspections for a heavy underground utility project. And um, that has also led me to do concrete work. And um, it's just we're constantly being exposed to things and growing. And it's just been a blessing. So uh, I'm not limited to only residential. Got some other questions, uh, but I'm going to bring my panel right now. Let me go to uh, Teresa Lundy. Teresa, you get the first question. Well, one, congratulations. Um, I know it is not easy building a business, but... Um, my question to you is, have you uh, been getting some support from the real estate market? Um, what type of research have you been doing in order to stay up on some of the updates and some of the nuances that's happening since the pandemic? Um, well, I've definitely been watching how the materials, of course, the pricing has gone up. Um, and, you know, I've really been working on expanding the business, doing more rehab work for me. Because the materials are going up, it's I think it's more um, cost efficient to go in and do rehab as opposed to trying to do new builds right now because lumber has gone up like crazy. Um, all the main materials, especially with inflation, everyone's going up on their prices. So I've just been staying on top of that and trying to make sure that you know I make the decisions that are best for my company so that we can continue to see movement and growth but also be smart and not jump out there and, you know, do things that may potentially put us in a bind. Mustafa. 
Yeah, I'm always interested in supply chains and also uh, the folks that we hire. So the question is, um, when you are dealing with supply chains, do you also focus on getting those from African-American or other people of color companies when possible? And then the second part to the question, well, I'll let you answer that. try to get my supplies from African-Americans, and I also try to employ them as well. And those both areas have been challenging, um, but yeah, there I've found some success in them as well. Second question, Mustafa. That, she got the second question, because I was curious about, uh, for black and brown communities, and you already mentioned that you've been looking for those employees, and uh, are, is are you currently navigating that process? Yeah, you know, that was also um, very important to me. I wanted to give people opportunities, especially, I want to give all people opportunities. Um, however, I would love to give people opportunities who look like me that may not have an easier um, way navigating and, and entering those rooms to get those opportunities. So that is my primary focus. Um, I've, I've been able to find people to partner with. But as far as finding people to um, do the work, the trades, it's been challenging. It's been more Hispanic um, workers. I uh, worked on a concrete project maybe about three months ago, and I started out with four-man crew. And, you know, they were very skilled and knowledgeable, but they just couldn't get along and work together. And it just it was hard to watch. Uh, so maybe, like, Two weeks within the project, I had to bring in some other people and mix it. And um, we got through it, but it's just, it's been a struggle. I, I really find more um, Hispanic workers, that's, especially being in Texas, they're everywhere. Demario. Uh, good to meet you tonight. Uh, my question or my comment slash question is, like in our household, uh, my wife, she can, she loves the construction stuff, building stuff, all that type of stuff. You remind me of her a lot. But I noticed that when we have contractors over, like we have right now, we're having some work done, and they talk to her, they don't give her the respect. They don't think she really knows what she's talking about. Uh, she's a pretty woman, and it's kind of like, oh, and, and if I'm around, they want to talk to me. But what's funny is, like, she really knows more about what's going on than I do. So I'm wondering, from the perspective of being the boss lady, not only just dealing with your crews, right, but actually getting the contracts, going into those bids where you're dealing with not only as a Black person, but a Black woman, just talk to us about that, how you navigated that, and how did your grandfather and father help you prepare you for that? Well, I grew up, and I'm not originally from Houston. I grew up in Nacogdoches, Texas. So, um, small town country girl. I, I have no problem getting Nacogdoches, Stephen F. Austin. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I grew up, I was my, a daddy's girl. So, I was always following my dad around. And, you know, I think I do have a lot of my mom in me, but I've got more of my father in me. So, I was a tomboy, and, you know, I've, I've I have two older brothers. So I think I handle myself pretty well, um, especially in a male-dominated industry. And I just, I carry myself respectful. I don't take any crap. And, you know, you respect me, I'm going to respect you. And I just definitely have to be expert and knowledgeable because, of course, being a woman, they think that I don't know what I'm talking about. Or, you know, or being an attractive woman, they think that I'm soft or I'm just... You know, I'm, I'm dainty. I, I've had experiences with workers and both um, people 
you know, at a higher level. And it's just been, it's been a challenge, but you know, you just, you, what do you do? Life is challenging. You just keep going, you adjust and you keep going. And if there's ever an issue where I feel like an opportunity um, is not given to me because I'm a woman or whatever, that opportunity wasn't for me. There's, there's so many other others out there. And um, I just try to keep myself motivated and not allow myself to be discouraged by that because it, it doesn't reflect, it's more of a reflection on them. It has nothing to do with me. And I think that there's more women taking up spaces in this industry. And I definitely hope that I can inspire more black women to hold space in this industry um, because I think we're more than capable. And, you know, I'm here. I'm here to stay. Hopefully we'll, we'll grow a lot more, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't really let that discourage me. President of SNR Construction in Houston. We surely appreciate it. Thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, good luck uh, in the future. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here, and um, I'll talk to you guys soon. All right, see you around H-Town. <laughs> okay. Appreciate it. Have Thanks a, a lot. One. All right, take Bye. care. Folks, got to go to a break. We come back. Uh, some, some headlines here uh, on Roland Martin Unfiltered. First of all, let me give a big thanks to Mustafa, Demario, as well as Teresa for joining me on the panel. Uh, thank you so very much, uh, all three of you. We come back. I'm going to knock out some headlines, and then we're going to show y'all our sneak peek at the 10-part series on the year of return. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Pull up a chair, take your seat. The Black Tape with me, Dr. Greg Carr, here on the Black Star Network. Every week, we'll take a deeper dive into the world we're living in. Join the conversation only on the Black Star Network. Hi, this is Essence Atkins. Hey, I'm Dion Cole from Blackish. Hey, everybody, this is your man Fred Hammond, and you're watching Roland Martin, my man, unfiltered. folks uh we always focus on black and missing uh and so uh jamaria thompson uh five six hundred ten pounds uh she has black hair brown eyes has been missing from college park georgia college park georgia uh folks uh, uh first of all uh which we've been missing from uh she was last seen uh, on january 6th you have any information any information uh, with regards to her, please call the Forest Park Police Department, 404-366-7280-404-366-7280. All right, folks, we also have uh, some sad news regarding uh, one of the previous stories that we had done uh, on Black and Missing, and that is uh, this young man uh, has been discovered uh, found dead. Uh, we, of course, is an update here. You says the body of a male positively identified as uh, Taylor Young, 25 years old, was discovered in the trunk of his vehicle in an impound in Dallas, Texas on January 19th. Uh, his body was in an advanced state of decomposition. Uh, he, of course, uh, actually was uh, from Houston. 
Uh, it is uh, uh, stunning when you uh, think about uh, this story that uh, he was found. Uh, Dallas is four hours from Houston. Uh, and so again, uh, this young man, unfortunately, Taylor Young, uh, was found, um, and again, 25 years ago, 25 years old, he dis disappeared eight weeks ago on December 9th, 2021, while he was running errands on his lunch break. Man, uh, we certainly send our condolences to his mother, Tiffany Robinson, and the entire family uh, for this. All right, folks, let's talk about uh, several headlines. A Georgia sheriff is offering a $500,000 reward for information surrounding the death of Kendrick Johnson. Lowndes County Sheriff Ashley Park, who just last week concluded uh, a second investigation that determined there was no foul play involved, released this statement. At the release of my synopsis of the federal files on the Kendrick Johnson case, uh, his parents have called me a liar and continued to state that Kendrick was murdered. Because of these statements, I am personally, with my own funds, offering a reward of one half million dollars to anyone who comes forward with information that results in the arrest and conviction a person for the alleged murder of Kendrick Johnson at Lowndes High School. Anyone who provides information will be required to do so in a contact interrogation at Lowndes County Sheriff's Office. I urge anyone, including the family, to add to this reward if they so desire. Wow, Kendrick's body was found in January 2013 in an upright wrestling mat. Uh, that right there is a sheriff saying, okay, I'm putting it all on the line. For the second day in a row, more than a dozen HBCUs received bomb threats this morning on the first day of Black History Month. The schools, Kentucky State University, Xavier University in Louisiana, Fort Valley State University in Georgia, were targeted today. They were already on high alert or lockdown. Monday, some HBCUs canceled classes after they got bomb threats. Eight HBCUs received bomb threats on January 5th. Just like today, no suspicious packages or explosives uh, were found. Uh, also, folks, uh, two Democratic and one independent senator are proposing a bill to protect elections and court votes count votes in the future. Senators Amy, Angus King, Amy Klobuchar and Dick Durbin want to eliminate the vice presidential duty of counting electoral votes and make it strictly ceremonial. This plan comes after former President Donald Trump tried to get then Vice President Mike Pence to overthrow votes in battleground states after the 2020 election. The bill also increases the number of lawmakers needed to make objections. The vice president cannot block electors in this proposal. The bill is still in the early draft stage. Um, folks, uh, also, we were talking about um, uh, another story, and that is uh, in Florida, where several voting and civil rights groups testified in federal court. The state's new voting law limits the ability to register voters. Senate Bill 90 restricts mail-in ballots, drop boxes, and outside voter registration groups. The new law requires the groups to explain to prospective voters their application runs the risk of not being delivered within the newly required 14-day deadline. These groups say this is dissuading people from actually registering, which was the whole point of Republicans there in Florida. Uh, in fact, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis has also proposed his own uh, a map of new districts that would toss out the congressional district of current uh, Congressman Al Lawson, who is African-American. And so that's now stopping the process from moving forward. Keep telling y'all that what these Republicans are doing is all about voter suppression. The questioning of potential jurors has, began to, has been delayed for the trial of a former Kentucky police officer involved in a botched raid that killed Breonna Taylor. Brett Harkinson has pleaded not guilty to three counts of wanton endangerment for allegedly firing wildly into the apartments of Taylor's neighbors. Jefferson Circuit Judge Ann Bailey Smith says Hankinson had to have unexpected minor surgery since he has the right to observe the jury selection process. The questioning is going to begin on Tuesday. 
Uh, all right, folks, the Justice Department says it will not reopen the federal investigation into the 2014 death of 12-year-old Tamir Rice, who was killed by Cleveland police. The DOJ notified Tamir's mother after participating in a federal training event for state prosecutors on investigating police misconduct cases. The family had asked federal prosecutors to take a fresh look at the case, but Christian Clark, the department's civil rights division chief, says there's insufficient evidence to open a federal probe. Unfortunately, I uh, hate to hear that, folks. Uh, but we don't hate to hear this. A New Hampshire state representative lost her committee seat after using a racial slur against a black male activist. Representative Nicole Klein-Knight used the N-word and called security on the activist after giving testimony last month. After several civil rights organizers sent a letter about her poor behavior, the Democrat was removed from her assignment on the House Criminal Justice and Pu Public Safety Committee. The organizers alleged Knight used to be an ally, but her recent actions put the black man's life at risk and her behavior has become increasingly dangerous. Mm, mm, mm. All right, folks, uh, here's the deal. Uh, let's talk about uh, our McDonald's scholarship. And that is this here. Uh, you have until February 28th. You now have 27 days. It's a deadline, folks, to apply for this scholarship. It's a partnership between McDonald's and myself, uh, honoring my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha, also Mustafa's, uh, for our, you know, honor of our 115th uh, anniversary, you know, honoring our seven jewels. Uh, the scholarship, folks, uh, seven $15,000 scholarships, seven $15,000 scholarships. If you want to apply, go to tmcf.org. That's tmcf.org to apply for these scholarships. All of the directions are there on the website. It's open to all HBCU schools, public and private. And so, again, you got till, you got till February 20th to apply. All I'm simply saying is, if you got six, 15 grand out there, you want to apply for it. And so, uh, please, uh, do so uh, as well. All right, last uh, piece here, folks. Today's business. Uh, and remember in 2019, I went to Ghana uh, for the year of return, spent 10 days there. We shot a lot of different stuff. We were greatly impacted by COVID because my Ghanaian uh, production team was impacted there. One of the producers actually was stuck in London for four months, could not even fly back to Ghana. And so we've been working on this, working on this, putting this whole thing together. So we're almost finished with it. So in March, we're going to debut uh, this 10-part series. That's right, folks, 10 parts uh, on the year of return. Some fascinating things we were able uh, to get there, some interviews. Here's a sneak peek at uh, 1619, the 2019, the year of return. You read about it in history. You know, you talk about it. You see it on our side, you know, of the United States, but to actually come here and see where this, the story of slavery started um, and connecting the dots. It's just a wild factor for me right now. It's going to be dark inside. You might not see too much, but you're going to feel everything. Just imagine see prisons in the yard in the United States. doesn't make sense that the richest continent in the world should be inhabited by the poorest people in the world. Part of that is by design. Um, Self-hatred has been a 
very tragic part of our whole existence. And I'm not blaming anybody for it, but if you look at most characterizations of being of African descent in the world, it's with these kind of tags. I always say, you're gonna do a lot of shopping. They go, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> and then they come, so they brought limited reserves, and then they spend all their time running to the ATM uh -huh. because they see all these clothes they want and fabric they want. It's overwhelming. I've been here for eight years, and I'm still taking pictures out of my car because it's just, it's a feast for the eyes on any given day. The kind of opportunities you have in Africa, you don't have those in America. The kind of money that you can make in Africa, very few of you would have that opportunity to do that in America. Cordy, who was working for the Congress in the United States, she has started a waste management company. She's the number one here in Ghana now. She looked at dollar signs and trash. There it is. Used to be jeans. Used to be jeans. Is now a huge problem. In Ghana alone, we have a two million unit deficit in housing. Two million. Two million. Seven of the 10 fastest growing economies mm -hmm. right now are African nations. Why in the world would we not be trying to figure out how to connect? Because the Lebanese are, yeah, the Chinese are, everybody else is doing it. We will be crazy to do it. And it's with people who look like us. We will be crazy to do it. Crazy to do it. Crazy to do it. And again, folks, we're going to drop that uh, in March. You do not want to miss it. And of course, uh, next week, I'll be leaving for Liberia. We'll be covering the 200th bicentennial celebration happening uh, in that country, which was actually founded by uh, freed slaves here in the United States. And so a lot of things that we're focused on, we just don't focus on what's happening uh, here in the United States. Uh, we focus on the African diaspora as well. That's one of the reasons why uh, this is uh, called Black Star Network. Uh, you saw in that last image in there, uh, the, uh, that was from the Black Star, it's called the Black Star of Africa from the uh, Black Star Gate there in Ghana. And Black Star also was the name of the cruise line that Marcus Garvey had uh, to connect people of African descent in America to the African diaspora uh, worldwide. And so uh, that's why we call it the Black Star Network. Folks, uh, that is it. Man, we got some great stuff. And again, this is why we ask for your support in terms of what we do. Uh, your resources allow us to be able to do what we do. We want you to also spread the word because we're building this for people to be able to see all across the globe. And so please let folks know they can download the Black Star Network app. That's right, curated by yours truly. Uh, on your Apple phone, of course, Apple, uh, Apple phone, Android phone, uh, Android uh, TV, Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, and Samsung Smart TV. And of course, uh, we appreciate uh, your resources. You make it possible for us to do what we do, to be able uh, to do these stories, to travel around the globe and around this country as well. And so uh, please join our Bring the Funk fan club. Our goal is to have 20,000 of our fans on an annual basis contribute. Uh, we ask for 50 bucks each, uh, 50, 50 bucks times 20,000 comes out to be a million dollars. Mm 
Uh, that is crucial for us to do what we do. Uh, last year, y'all gave $827,000. Uh, that was an increase over 2020 where you gave $672,000. And so we appreciate every dollar, whether you gave 50, 100, 500, 1,000, 10,000, or 25, 20, 10, 5, 1, every dollar matters. Uh, you can support us via Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal's R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zale is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Folks, that is it. I'll see you tomorrow. Don't forget, uh, we're streaming next uh, Balance uh, Life with Dr. Jackie Hood Martin. You don't want to miss that. And tomorrow, uh, you can ch catch Faraji Muhammad's uh, In the Culture. That's going to be from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. And then at 11 a.m. Eastern tomorrow, we'll be rolling out uh, our, my interview with Bill Duke. That's tomorrow uh, right here on the Black Star Network. I will see you then. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.